This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. Let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Herman. In the next half hour, you'll hear the good and the bad, how rain across much of the country this week has affected producers. You'll hear about the wine trend that's seeing more people put down the glass and a funny-looking fruit that you might mistake for a Christmas bauble. It's coming into season just in time for festive celebrations. That's coming up, but first... This week, the Senate passed the federal government's changes to extend the Murray-Darling Basin plan. The changes remove a cap on the amount of water that can be purchased from farmers and ensure new water-saving infrastructure projects can be delivered to meet environmental targets. But the federal opposition, farm groups and some regional councils argue buybacks decimate regional communities by making less water available for farming. Here's Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek addressing the media at Parliament House, where she was asked when the buybacks could commence. As you know, we're already in the market for voluntary water purchase for another part of the plan, and uh, we'll soon be concluding that first tender. Uh, We will uh, actually, as I've said multiple times, voluntary water purchase is only one part of this plan. (laughs) I made it rain and then the umbrellas got to clear here. Um, Voluntary water purchase is one part of this plan. We'll be continuing to work with states and territories on vital water-saving infrastructure. Uh, We'll continue to look at other options for recovering water. But we uh, we have always said a voluntary water purchase will be part of delivering the plan and we'll look at that next year. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek. Well, delegates from across the world have descended on Dubai for the Global Climate Summit COP28 to negotiate the world's response to climate change. But climate-related regulations are unlikely for Australian food and fibre producers. That's according to a leading scientist. Mark Howden has been on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world's peak climate science body, since 1991. In that time, he's worked across assessments and special reports, such as the Land Use Change Report that examined agriculture and food security. Professor Howden says there's more for Australian producers to celebrate than to fear from the talks. The the core messages from IPCC in relation to agriculture and food is that there's already significant climate change-related stresses on our systems. And we also look at the adaptation responses and we identify that there's many, many different adaptation responses in agriculture and food systems, but we're lagging behind. We're not implementing those adaptation responses that we know exist fast enough. And the last component in the IPCC is we've documented fairly thoroughly the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and food, uh, and they're around about 29% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. So they're actually about the same size as the electricity sector, both here in Australia and globally. So do you think in the longer term, is it possible to fully decarbonise agriculture? We have to look at the full range of of different greenhouse gas emissions, and and they start pre-farm in things like uh, fertiliser production uh, and and transport of that fertiliser and production of tractors and things like that. Then on-farm, there's a whole series of, of different emissions, including methane and nitrous oxide, 
and loss of carbon to the system um, from soil carbon loss um, and vegetation loss. And then there's post-farm emissions as well. If we look at that, Yes. Um, so, for example, transport, as we go to more electric vehicles and electric trucks, um, we'll be able to take those emissions out of the system. On the on-farm emissions, which are the biggest single emission sources, they're going to be very hard to reduce to zero. But importantly, we don't actually have to take those to net zero for methane and nitrous oxide to be consistent with the Paris Agreement temperature goals. We have to reduce nitrous oxide by about 30% and methane emissions by about 50 to 60% to be consistent with a 1.5 degree goal. Do we need to be changing what we're eating and what we're producing? In the past, we've looked at supply side solutions, but we also need to look at the demand side, which is what are the components of, of food which are in demand? And we see, for example, that there's a steadily increasing demand for um, meat uh, protein. And that has a very high greenhouse gas footprint in most cases. And the question then is, uh, can we provide those uh, you know, appropriate dietary components, um, but uh, not necessarily using traditional livestock processes? So those, those solutions range from everything from soy milk type products to yeast-based products uh, through to completely, essentially vat-grown meat and plant substitutes. And those are all real things. You know, we've got examples of all of them, uh, but some of them are culturally, you know, not particularly accepted at the moment. Some of them are at too high a price point. Uh, and, and some of them, of course, go up against existing industries, which have a very strong political voice. What do you think the world can expect from COP28 when it comes to agriculture and food systems? Well, there is a, an anticipated leader's dec declaration on food systems, agriculture and climate, and that's effectively asking countries to align their national food systems and, and agriculture strategies if they have them. So, for example, Australia doesn't have a food policy with their nationally determined contributions. So that's the commitments they're making to um, other countries in the in the COPs. There, there is going to be increased uh, focus on food security. So in this COP, there also is going to be a focus on adaptation. So uh, working through the global goal of adaptation, and and that's that's an important part of the agriculture and food picture. Is that how can we adapt? what are actually quite vulnerable systems to climate change to those climate changes so that we reduce risk and improve productivity and sustainability. In terms of any potential policy or regulation outcomes, do you think food and fibre producers in Australia should be concerned? I think there's more opportunity than risk in this space. I think the opportunity, though, will mostly arise for, for those parties who are prepared. And to be prepared, you have to start to put in place uh, mechanisms which both reduce greenhouse gas emissions in cost-effective ways and also much more effectively respond to the changes that we're seeing in climate. And at the moment in Australia, we've largely dropped ball on that in an institutional sense. So at government level and at our research and development corporation level, we were global leaders going back a dozen years or more. Uh, we need to regain that momentum and bring uh, researchers, policymakers and the farming system stakeholders together to start to create new innovations which generate those opportunities. That's Professor Mark Howden, the head of the Australian National University's Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, speaking there with Fiona Broom. I'm Bridget Herman, bringing you all the news about the food on your dinner plate. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, it's been a week of wet weather across many parts of Australia. 
The heavy rains have been great news for some, and not so much for others, including South Australian cherry growers in the Adelaide Hills. Up until last week, the season was looking pretty good, as long as the weather held out. Monday's rain changed that. Parts of the region got 100 mils of rain, with most areas sitting between 40 to 60 millimetres. Acting President of Cherry Growers of Australia and South Australian cherry grower himself, Nick Noski, says Monday's rains have done more damage than expected. It's done a little bit of damage to early varieties, probably more than some people uh, expected might happen, I think. Yeah, it's sort of you know, damaged some blocks to the point where they're not worthwhile commercially harvesting. This is just you know, early varieties that we're ready to harvest this week. What does it mean then they'll just have to wait for the next sort of flush? What's What, what do they do then? Yeah, that's right. So growers have a constant stream of varieties maturing you know, up till and you know, well after the Christmas period. So you know, it, just, it just puts a bit of a gap in their production schedule. So And a lot of that excess fruit at this time of the year is exported. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's really a, a cash flow hit to growers. I don't think it's going to affect consumers too much. We heard only last week from you that uh, it was looking like a pretty good season as long as the weather held out. Obviously, it, it didn't. I mean, is this a disaster? Is this is just sort of part and parcel of sometimes what happens around this time of year? It's part and parcel of what happens. It was, you know, uh, I think the damage was a little bit worse than what some people ex- expected on the blocks that were ready to harvest. But as you said, that is part and parcel of cherry growing. We usually get usually get one rain event over the course of a season, which does a bit of damage. So, you know, fingers crossed we, we get a good run into Christmas. Cherry Growers of Australia's Nick Noski speaking with Selena Green. Up in Queensland, the central and southern parts have also had a fair drink. Claremont, east of Rockhampton, received 186 millimetres of rain this week and more than 240 mils for the month of November. Fifth generation grazier David Dennis said on Monday that he was grateful for the rain. It's uh, something you don't see very often in November. Well, I've never seen it really in November. How will your country handle that rain? Yeah, it's pretty good, sort of, like good draining country and like, I don't, there'll be a bit of wash here and there, but as I said, fortunately we had that good rain leading up to it and that gives you a body of feed. And when you've got feed there, well, it doesn't uh, erode so much. Were your dams full? Yeah, they were. Some weren't by washing, but this will certainly by wash them now. And that's what I was happy, that they were pretty chockers because, as I just explained, we got, you know, if they're a bit dry, that's when uh, flood water will take them banks out on you. Go straight through a dam wall. Mm-hmm. How's the condition of your cattle? Real good, yep. Excellent. So they'll be right? Yeah, they'll, they yeah can... they'll be right, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy with that. We control matey and you wouldn't believe. Normally I don't put the bulls out till around well, another fortnight, but we put them out about a week ago. Well done. So they'll be happy. And it's pretty awkward to get bulls out, you know, like 60 or 70 bulls out with breezes. In the wet, I have been caught in the wet once before, and I said, no, I'll go early this time. So just said, well, we did, and we only did it last Wednesday. So, so we're lucky to get away with it. So, David, Dennis, have you talked to many of your neighbours? Have they had as much? Yeah, yeah I've been talking to them. And uh, no, they've had, you know, a couple of inches. Well, how incredible. You're a fifth generation for that part of the world, and you say that 
you probably haven't seen it this early in the season before. No, not this, not this big fall, no. Grazier David Dennis speaking with Amy Phillips. Well, the rains continued throughout the week. In Victoria's Gippsland, there's been between 100 and nearly 400 millimetres of rain falling for most of the region, and even some flooding for the town of Malakuta. The farmers that received a good drink, however, have been thankful for the steady downpour. Vicky Hiscock runs a beef and dairy operation in Tanamba, which is downstream of Lake Glen Maggie. She told Fiona Broom the soaking has absolutely turned her season around. And instead of spending time and money irrigating, the rain means she can tackle some other jobs, like clearing out the shed. This is our third day of rain, and I think we've got another one to go. But, you know, can't control what you can't control, and it's certainly turned our season around no end. What was your, um, what was your, your year looking like a couple of months ago? Well, I know in September, uh, end of August, early September, we got the seed drill out and we were drilling as much as we possibly could because we had a, it was so dry, we were activating a drought plan. We thought we would sow as much country and use all our water before Christmas. So we had to grow our fodder and activate uh, our drought plan. And then at 1st of October, it started raining and our irrigation, we were probably uh, at least halfway through our water right. And then the water, rain in October, the flood in October, um, set our water right back to um, zero um, with our spill. Then we've had this godsend. So our season has turned from doom and gloom to absolutely amazing. Gippsland beef and dairy farmer Vicky Hiscock. I'm Bridget Herman. You're listening to Countrywide. And I want to take you over to Western Australia now. The WA Premier made an official apology in Parliament on behalf of the state to Aboriginal people who worked for little or no pay. The apologies come in the wake of an agreement to settle a class action launched by Mervyn Street, brought on behalf of Aboriginal people who were subject to discriminatory legislation and practices. And stolen wages. WA Premier Roger Cook told Parliament that legislation in effect from 1936 to 1972 was supposed to protect Aboriginal people, but instead it resulted in hardship and exploitation. Madam Speaker, I acknowledge here in the Speaker's Gallery today Mr Mervyn Street and Mr Peter Salmon and his brother Alan. And can I take the opportunity to acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have joined us in the Gallery today. Today's apology follows the settlement of a class action led by Mr Mervyn Street on behalf of Aboriginal people across Western Australia. The class action started in 2020 and sought justice for people who, over a long period of time, were subject to discriminatory legislation. This legislation was supposed to protect Aboriginal people but instead resulted in hardship and exploitation. The controls imposed on Aboriginal people impacted on where they were allowed to work, travel and live. It also impacted on how much money they were paid, how they were paid and how they received their wages and entitlements. Legislation of this kind, particularly in the earlier period of WA's colonial history, resulted in Aboriginal people working long hours without receiving any pay or an appropriate amount of pay. Instead, they were often paid in rations such as flour, sugar, tea and tobacco. 
the book down system where, where people bought necessities on credit at the station store also meant some people never saw the money they were meant to be paid. In 2006, the Commonwealth Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs called on governments across Australia to pay adequate compensation for the hardships and injustices in this stolen wages period. In WA, the 2008 Stolen Wages Task Force report looked in detail at the laws and policies that were established to control the welfare and well-being of Aboriginal people. It is clear it has taken too long to fully address the implications of that report. I also acknowledge the 2012 reparations scheme was inadequate and excluded many workers who were impacted by these laws. I want to say to all Aboriginal workers that today the Government of WA recognises that those laws and policies were wrong. And we acknowledge and apologise for the fact that those laws and policies cause great harm and disadvantage. And a policy, an apology does not change what happened. It cannot. But it recognises the importance an apology has as recognition, as a move towards reconciliation and a step in a healing process. In bringing a close to this shameful part of Western Australia's history, on behalf of the State of Western Australia, I apologise to the Aboriginal men, women and children who worked in Western Australia between 1936 and 1972, often for decades, for no pay or not enough pay. We acknowledge that many of these people have not lived to see this day. For their family members who remain, we are sorry for the hurt and loss that your loved ones suffered. Their strong shoulders carried the weight of their families and communities. Their strong hands built up this state's economy. Their strong minds and spirits pursued justice in the decades that followed leading to this moment and the recognition they rightly deserve. To you all, we say sorry. WA Premier Roger Cook apologising to the Aboriginal people who were subject to legislation that allowed their wages to be withheld. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Are you drinking less alcohol than you used to? People's drinking habits have had a major shift globally in recent years, and that's had big implications for those producing wine and spirits. Those changing consumer habits have already had an impact on wine stocks, including here in Australia, and it's compounded by trade issues and changing guidelines and health warnings too. Felicity Carter is an Australian wine journalist working across Europe from her base in Germany, and she says global wine trends are changing. There's a trend towards gastronomy and wine tourism, which is very positive. That's been uh, accelerating for the last 10 years, and there's something that Australia is very well placed to take advantage of. The biggest changes, though, that have happened uh, are in two areas. One is that uh, people are changing the way that they drink. They're moving out of silos. So people used to be wine drinkers or beer drinkers, and they'd move a little bit into other categories. But what's happening is a complete collapse of categories. So people... Uh, are now um, drinking soft drinks at dinner or drinking a lot more uh, no and low alcohol than they did in the past. But I think the most significant change that's happened in wine has happened very, very rapidly and it's 
the changing guidelines around alcohol that the World Health Organization has come out with. So in the last couple of years, um, the, the guidelines have changed in Europe and in Canada and particularly in Ireland. Um, and they've said that there's no safe level of alcohol. Um, and this is having enormous impact. So, so people are moderating their drinking um, quite rapidly. So there's already been, I guess, well, there are already signs of that having impact on the amount of wine that people are drinking in those countries? Absolutely. Um, Gallup uh, did a poll earlier this year in the United States and uh, the number of, of young people who say that they never drink because of health reasons has risen hugely. So particularly people under the age of 30, uh, are not. Uh, many of them are not drinking at all. Uh, and that's something that we haven't seen in the past. What about Australia? We're we still catching up a little bit on that that advice. But it, it, it is something that is inevitably going to have a bigger impact here for producers. Yes, it's it's, it's absolutely huge. Um, I, I have to emphasise though that this is a very contested area. So um, there are many many people who think the World Health Organisation has set the limit too low and that, that it's not supported by scientific and medical evidence. Um, nevertheless, governments worried about ageing populations have adopted this uh, no safe level mantra because it's just easier than talking about some of the complexities of alcohol and health. Um, and we can already see the impact on drinking. It's been very dramatic internationally. What does this then mean for producers going forward, for people who want to say, well, I'd like to continue making wine, but if there's going to be less people drinking it, um, you know, what, what's the way forward? So there's, there's really two things. One is to focus on uh, making better quality products. It's very clear that people still want to drink, but they're drinking less and they're spending more money when they do drink, so they want better quality products. I think anybody who's in the business of, of cheap alcohol um, is probably going to have a very difficult time um, in the days ahead. Um, and the second thing is that a lot of producers are rapidly moving into producing non-alcoholic products. There's a huge rise in people embracing non-alcoholic wines. There's all sorts of stores which are popping up overseas. There's one called Nix and Nix in Holland. There's one called Boisson in the United States. There's Club Soda in Britain. Um, and all of these people sell non-alcoholic drinks and they're all reporting that the, the favourite product of, of customers is non-alcoholic wine. Well, because I, I mean, I have noticed here in Australia, I think a lot of consumers would, a lot of this more popping up on supermarket shelves and a lot of bottlers these days or liquor stores have, uh, you know, a growing section of non-alcoholic or low-alcoholic wines. Are we, again, playing a bit of catch-up here in Australia where other countries maybe have, you know, a bit more advanced in developing some of these still good-tasting but low-alcoholic wines? Yeah, I, I do want to emphasise that this has happened very rapidly. This change has happened within the last 18 months and it's accelerating, so nobody is really on top of it. It's, it's caught people by surprise. Um, no, nobody expected such a rapid social shift. And, and I imagine for a producer that, that is hard then to suddenly turn around and, and start making these products, um, you know, just on the hop. This is not something that, uh, you know, as, I guess as a winemaker you can, you can do very suddenly. Well, actually, you, you can. I was in um, I was in Amsterdam last week at at a, at a wine fair, and there's huge excitement around this category because you know wine's very traditional, and it's not been a place where there's been a lot of innovation, and and it's not really been a place where you can get a lot of competitive advantage because everybody makes very good quality wine, um, and suddenly people are really really excited by the possibilities of making very innovative new products. So. Um, one of the things that's happening is we're going back to um, a very sort of ancient technique of recipe-based winemaking where you can make wine and then you can add things to it. You can add fruit juices, you can add herbs, you can add all sorts of things. So that's actually a really exciting thing. It's unleashing a lot of creativity. 
Business of Drinks co-founder Felicity Carter speaking with Selena Green. Well, it's a fruit that looks a bit like a Christmas bauble, and now it's in season on farms around Northern Australia. I'm talking, of course, about rambutans. Have you tried one? Matt Bram visited one of the Northern Territory's largest rambutan farms, which is busy harvesting and also busy expanding. So we'll just go over here somewhere. Oh, it's one of my favourite times of the year. Christmas is just around the corner and I'm in a golf buggy at Kerry Yupini's farm checking out this year's rambutan crop. Uh, Kerry, before I ask you about how the season's going, it looks to me like your farm's getting a little bit bigger. Tell me about that. Well, it is. Not only have we increased our planting of uh, rambutans and a lot of them we've propagated ourselves, but... We've been fortunate enough to get a grant from the government to extend our netting and it's been of great benefit because we get a, a, a 50-50 grant on the cost of new netting, up to a limit of course, you can't do the, can't do the whole neighbourhood, but, <laughs> but it's, it, it's been really effective. I mean it's called protective netting and I, I guess it's to protect the farmer from the wildlife but you know we're not sure... <laughs> Who's the real benefactor of it all? But oh, there'd be lots of birds and possums and all sorts of things that would love to eat these rambutans. Yeah, yeah they're all hanging around. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, something that you've always thought about doing? Well, we yes, we've thought about it for a long time, but obviously the cost was a real problem because, you know, we'd we'd filled up most of our netted area here, and uh, we were keen to expand with a few ideas that we had. And uh, this just allowed us to, to get into it and to make the, make the step forward. So it, it's, a, it's a, you know, I take my hat off to the, to the NT uh, government. That's the plant, plant Industries Department particularly uh, that have been a, of great assistance. And, and planting more rambutans. What's driving the confidence in this industry? Well, demand's always been good. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of a bit of a resurgence going on because I notice a lot of young farmers uh, are now thinking, well, rambutans might be a good alternative uh, fruit crop for the north here. And uh, I think that's what's driving it. But hopefully we'll all make a buck out of it. Uh, you know, so uh, demand should increase and that should be able to uh, take up the increased uh, production that w- will be coming through in the future. Yeah. And so this season, Kerry, how is it shaping up? Well, you know, Matt, it's probably a bit patchy and uh, there's been uh, difficulty in some areas and that was particularly because of the the, the heat and the, the ongoing heat but more so the dry wind and that went on for weeks and I think the old trees got very confused I reckon they wanted to go back to their native Malaysia after <laughs> after about the after about the third or fourth week of just dry out wind because what happens it, it desiccates your flowers and then and then you you get no no uh, production of that tree at all and so it's a bit dependent upon what stage the flowers are at too. Of course, if they're just forming up and the wind comes through, then it's curtains for them. So uh, in other parts of the orchard uh, where the flowers are a bit a bit more advanced, we're able to get a reasonable good crop off it, albeit that it's just started to fill out properly 
now after a bit of rain because no matter how much we irrigate, we can't compensate for that rain, as you know. So we've got some good fruit coming through now and, uh, as I say, we're getting rid of it all. So we've been to most parts of Australia so far with it. So, okay. so for Remutan fans, they will start noticing this at the local markets and at major supermarkets. How long are you expecting the season to last for? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, um, <laughs> depends how you view it, there is a second crop coming through, although it's not as big as its first one. So potentially we'll have fruit in January, and as we always hope, get over the holy grail of getting to Lunar New Year and uh, if that's the case then it's uh, it's on so hopefully we'll make it Merry Christmas Kerry <laughs> Merry Christmas Matt and keep eating rambutans <laughs> <laughs> that was Kerry Yupini who grows rambutans in Darwin that was Kerry Yupini who grows rambutans in Darwin's rural area now that expansion that he's done should mean he could plant an extra 100 trees which in years to come will of course be a lot of extra rambutans well that's all for countrywide this week i'm bridget herman you can hear more on the abc listen app and find out more news on the abc website bye for now Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.